Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember having an impact on you as a young girl? Nike. Lifelong athlete. What's the first Nike product that attracted you to the brand and why? Um, I remember Nike Airs. And I just remember the simplicity of it. And I was a kid, but I was so struck by the name and and the product and the fact that they were one. I was like, oh, of course, that's so brilliant. And at that moment, I also remember thinking how hard it must have been. I didn't know at that point in time I wanted to be a marketer. I just remember being like really awestruck by the product innovation and the fact that the name said it all. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, I get it. And I immediately wanted it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Farah Howard, the chief marketing officer for GoDaddy, the nearly $4 billion brand whose mission is to be a growth partner to millions of everyday entrepreneurs. While GoDaddy may still be famous for Super Bowl ads of years ago, it's actually the world's largest service platform with 20 million customers, 80 million plus domain names, and about 9,000 employees. Full disclosure, when I left PNG to start my own business, I became one of those 20 million customers. It seems like fate that my guest Farah is now working for GoDaddy. She has spent her career working for companies founded by iconic entrepreneurs. After a short stint at PepsiCo's Gatorade after she earned her MBA at Michigan Ross, Farrah worked for Dell, the skateboard sneaker company Vans, and then Amazon before joining Seattle-based GoDaddy about two and a half years ago. Farrah is a lover of all things sports and nature-related. She's a mother of three young boys. This is my conversation with Farrah Howard. Welcome, Farah, to the CMO Podcast. You are a Michigan Ross graduate, and my son is also a Michigan Ross graduate, and he's in his first job after Ross. So I want you to reflect back on your first job in your first year after Ross. What was that like? Well, first, I would be remiss to not say go blue, and congratulations to your son. I, I can wax poetic about Michigan for hours, um, but I won't. I'll jump right into first job out of school. The short answer is my first job out of Michigan business school was at Gatorade. The longer answer to that is that was actually my intent in going to business school. I went to business school actively pursuing a career in marketing with my eye on sports marketing. 
And Gatorade was where I interned and also where I went right after Michigan. Wow. And I hear you remember, did you meet your husband at Ross? I did. I did. There's got to be a story He's, there. And there is a story there. He, well, first of all, he's working downstairs right below me in his home office. Um, happy 2020 and 2021. Uh, but yes, uh, my husband, whose name is Fred, Fred and Farah, the alliteration is handy. Um, and we met my very first year in business school. He actually graduated in 2000. I'm class of 2002, but he was a consultant and could live anywhere. So he stayed in Ann Arbor because it's a fabulous town. And it was a blind date. Um, and I resisted. I was like, hey, I'm here for school. You know, I can date later. And finally, my friend wore me down. I went on one date with him and the rest was pretty much history. We got married in 2004. Wow. I met my wife in business school as well. I was a second year. She was a first year. I met her in September. We were engaged in January. So talk about wow. speed well, and agility. <laughs> and, we're, and we're 38 years later, still happily married. That's awesome. When you know, you know, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It is a, a little known fact, though. Most of my friends from business school, they met their spouses in business school. I think it's one of those moments in folks' life where you know, you're hyper-focused on career, but then you meet people who are as well. And um, I have a, a lot of great marriage stories coming out of business school that I would have never known about if I hadn't gone. Okay, let's go from romance to your career. You've worked in very interesting company cultures, Gatorade, as we talked just a moment ago, then Dell, Vans, Amazon Fashion, and now GoDaddy. And we, of course, are all shaped by our experiences and the people we meet in those experiences. So I want you to talk about, in your career to date, what are one or two of those experiences that have really shaped you as the leader you are today, Farah? The very first experience that I had at Gatorade was incredibly valuable for me as a lifelong marketer. And you know, after years at Procter & Gamble, consumer packaged goods are best in class and really grounding you in the customer. And getting to work at Gatorade and living you know, about an hour away from the, the lab in Barrington, Illinois, where you could watch customers you know, ingest the product, see how it impacted their performance, be on the sports field and watch athletes engage with the product, as well as, of course, consuming research, just taught me the invaluable lesson of talk to your customers every day. And I think there are a lot of marketers that are so far removed from the end customer that you don't have that opportunity. And that's been a huge, like I said, made a huge impact in my career early on and always taught me to seek out customers. Um, particularly in industries where I may have not had the opportunity to be as close to them as I was at Gatorade. So that's one. And then completely switching gears, when I reflect on my experience at Dell, and I was there for 11 years, I had an opportunity to stand up their in-house agency for Dell.com. And that experience taught me the incredible importance and value of connecting creative leaders with business strategy, because you'll often see they're they're pulled pretty far apart. Often. Even in a traditional agency model, if you as a marketer hire an outside agency, not only are they on the outside of the building, but they're often pretty far removed from what the business goals are. And having a chance to stand up a team internally, having been very close to the business prior, and really creating that tether, I think, produces the best outputs for the company and for the creative teams because they feel invested in the work and the problems you're trying to solve. 
And so both of those have been really big themes in my career. Put your customer in the center and make sure that the teams that are making the work intimately understand why and what the KPIs or outputs are they're driving to. And as a result, I've constantly sought out opportunities where I could manage in-house agencies and be very close to the creative work. And like I said, you can't be a marketer if you're not thinking about the customer. Yeah, we'll get into that in a bit. But I want you to think about your first boss. You know, we, we found at Procter & Gamble that the first boss and the relationship with the first boss with the new employee was a real driver of long-term success for that individual. So can you reflect a, a bit about your first boss at Gatorade following your Ross MBA? Uh, how was the relationship? What did that person do well? What did they maybe not do so well? And so you know, just reflect a bit about the impact of your first boss. I love this question. And I'm going to answer it by telling you my first boss at Gatorade when I was an intern had a massive influence on me. And she was a part of my life for at least a decade thereafter, even though I was only at Gatorade for about a year and a half. The short answer on why only Gatorade for a year and a half, if it was your dream job, is love got in the way, um, in a good way. And I can talk more about that too. But this woman, Lori Levins, um, taught me the value of being incredibly clear on how you go to market. Um, Again, standing up for your customer and leading with passion. She's an incredibly passionate individual. And those are lessons that I also carry forward. She also helped me understand the landscape of how Gatorade went to market. And so when I came back full time, really helped me understand where to focus. What I will say is the manager that I had thereafter when I joined, um, and actually I had three managers in about a year and change while I was there. And I think that that actually played a role in why I departed as well. When I went to Dell, I had I worked for a lot of different bosses there as well, but had a lot of continuity in terms of the relationships over the 11 years that I was there. And I stayed as much for the work and the customers as I did for the people that I worked for and with. And so that stability is, to me, really important too. All right. Now, before I jump into GoDaddy and your career and talking about that, I, I think you're the, one of the world's experts in two areas. And I want you to guess what those two areas are. And you may or may not guess them, but we're going to talk about two big areas where I think there's a lot of learning you can share with our listeners. But what do you think those are? One guess is likely the evolving role of in-house agencies. I've had yep. an opportunity to do a lot of that yep. work. You're right. That's one. All right. One. Oh, two. I'm going to tell you out of the gate. I think I'm wrong on this, but it's my, it's my guess. It's the only other guess I've got is brand purpose. I've had an opportunity to work on you know, brands that are steeped in purpose mm-hmm. from democratizing technology at Dell to you know, enabling creativity at Vans to enabling entrepreneurs at GoDaddy. But I would contest I'm not an expert here because I'm still actively learning. And I know you work with a lot of purpose-driven brands. So tell, yeah. tell, me, tell me I'm wrong and what number two is. Well, I'm going to say you're two for two. Uh, it's just a little bit like, wait, wait, don't tell me, right? That show. <laughs> you're close <laughs> yeah. enough. Uh, the first one is certainly related to brand purpose, but it's entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs. Look at the companies you work for. You know, the, almost all of them started by charismatic founders who stayed with the brand for quite a while. 
And yeah. I would certainly GoDaddy's whole mission is entrepreneurship right now. And that's what you're immersed in. But this is, um, I think you have a really interesting lens on this. Michael Dell, Vans, of course, Amazon. So I'd like you to share with our listeners, what's your candid advice to those out there who would like to be an entrepreneur? They may be in a big company right now and they want to spring out or they want to try something entrepreneurial within their company or they, they have an idea they want to somehow take it to market. What's your advice? You know about as much about this as anyone. Yes. So first and foremost, for folks who have an entrepreneurial spirit, I would say that that is akin to being incredibly curious and having a very high tolerance for risk, meaning you've got to be willing to be incredibly right and incredibly wrong because what entrepreneurs do, and this is what I see all day long, is they'll They'll take an idea. They will get incredibly passionate about that idea. And they're often working alone, right? And you're told early on, like, this is crazy. You have this stability. Why would you make this change? Or do you know that people want this thing that you, this idea that you have, this thing that you're selling, this service that you're rendering? And what I find with entrepreneurs is they have incredible fortitude, incredible drive. And like I said, a high level of um, risk tolerance, meaning they're able to sort of go, well, all right, well, that didn't work. I'll, I'll go back at it. And it's often go back at it from a different angle. There are serial entrepreneurs who, and I know many of them who own you know, hundreds of domains because they'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea and they're like, I got to plant this flag. And, and sometimes they go back to that flag that they planted. Sometimes they don't. But many of the entrepreneurs that I know feel so strongly about the world needing to know about this thing or own this thing or experience this thing, that when the world says no, or they get a signal that maybe there's not an interest, they're like, all right, well, that door didn't work. I'm going to try this left door or this right door. And that level of passion and drive is, isn't just limited to being successful in small businesses, right? What you'll often see is, and mind you, at, at GoDaddy, you know, I would say our sweet spot is really supporting the micro business, often the solopreneur, someone with one to five employees. But I've had an opportunity to work pretty closely and side by side with entrepreneurs that had an idea and then stuck with that idea and helped grow it to unfold to become something much, much bigger. What's the most inspiring entrepreneur story you have experienced at GoDaddy? One of the most inspiring is a woman named Consuela, new to the United States, um, and started a housekeeping service. She first came and she started cleaning houses herself. And then she realized not only was she, was she really good at that, but she was really good at, um, at business development. And, and that sounds like a fancy term if you're cleaning homes, but that's what it is, right? She was so good. She kept getting more and more interest. And so she realized instead of waking up every day at 5 a.m. with two kids in tow to clean homes, do one in the morning, drop kids off at school, go back and clean in the afternoon, that she could actually stand up a business. And she stood up a website. She identified a handful of men and women who wanted to work for her and with her and started to build a really healthy business for herself. And then COVID happened. And the 
perseverance that she had in the past year to maintain momentum, figure out how to do things differently, get, you know, get her hands back in the work, do a lot of the hands-on work herself again, not just manage the business was beyond inspiring. And what I, what really touches me about Consuela's story, she lives in the Southeast and um, she's been a GoDaddy customer for quite some time is not only her perseverance, but how focused she was on being successful. It's that all these side doors analogy again, because you know of the desire to keep her family happy and healthy, to build stability for herself and to create independence. And her story is is not unusual, which it sounds like an odd thing to say for like the most inspiring story. But the reason I'll say it's not unusual is there's a huge number of entrepreneurs who are, you know, first generation Americans really trying to figure out how to get started on their own. And that perseverance is so, I'm a a multi-generational American family. And so thinking about, you know, being new to a country, being new to learning a language, um, having to learn how to stand up a business, stand up the technology, support your family. Wow. And her story is one that we've told many times, um, not just to help her um, parlay her business forward, but to inspire other folks like Consuela um, that they can be successful. I just watched In the Heights, you know, uh, Lin- Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical that he did before Hamilton. I yes. just watched it on HBO Max Saturday night. And it's a story of entrepreneurship. Really, the I mean, it's a wonderful musical. It's, it's great stories, obviously, wonderful casting, and all all of that. But at the end of the day, it's an American dream story, and it's a story about a lot of entrepreneurs finding their way. Right. And there's no one way either. Um, and I I have that on my list of shows to see. Um, I can only imagine it's fantastic. But you know, I would imagine that story tells lots of different paths. And it does. Approaches. Um, and there, there's no one way, um, which is also what makes entrepreneurship to some folks seem so daunting, um, but to others so motivating, because like I said, lots of different angles and, and lots of different ways to do it um, from a technology standpoint and from a, a physical standpoint as well. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. All right, we're going to shift to the second area where you are a world's expert, and that is for sure leading in-house creative agencies. You you did that at Dell. I think you even started one up at Dell. You had in-house creative advance, if I understand correctly. I did. And you now have a thriving in-house creative team at GoDaddy. I want you to talk about how do you build a culture within a company that is 
attractive to creatives, that they want to be a part of, that they want to build a career in, that keeps them stimulated and fresh and energetic. You've done this now at a f- in a few organizations. What have you learned about creating that, I don't know, if you, if you want to say mini-culture? Mm-hmm. When I reflect on my experience at Dell, which, if my memory serves, was about 2008, 2009, and it was a very different time in terms of in-house agencies. We flash forward to now, so many companies have in-house creative teams. But in 2008, 2009, it was, it was pretty early. And specific to the culture, one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about early in establishing the agency was exactly to your point, how do we create an environment where creatives can be creative? Right. How to, and, and that's everything from thinking about space, right? Like we want folks to have a lot of areas to put up work, to collaborate with one another. The traditional office space is not incredibly conducive in a corporate, like typical corporate American office. Although I guess I should put that in quotes right now mm-hmm. because so much is in flux you know, as a result of COVID. But we spent a lot of time thinking about space and flow and collaborative environments, huge walls where we could put up work, um, and also a lot of creative freedom to communicate differently. So joking aside, like every Friday afternoon, a woman in my team who was amazing at team building would stand up on her desk, yell at the top of her lungs, and bring everyone together to give out this ridiculous award that was a stuffed animal that sang for the most creative idea of the week. And, you know, we sat next to an engineering organization that would prefer to not have that type of disruption. You could imagine over time, our organization sort of shifted further and further spatially away from those teams. But you have to have that space and that freedom. And I spent a lot of time early on when we were establishing this team, talking about why it mattered to the leader that sponsored this in-house stand-up. And we were given a lot of latitude and liberty to do things differently. I would contest if one of my creative leaders was on the call with me, they would say, oh, we could have done so much more. And we, we could have. If you look at a traditional agency, their spaces are incredibly fun and often loud with siphoned off quiet space where folks can think and work and write. And so we worked within the confines of what we could at Dell. Uh, but we we were able to do some things differently, and we certainly behaved and operated differently, and were permitted to do so, which is part of why we we grew so quickly, and there was so much stability in the team because folks felt like they could have an environment where they could be themselves, and they didn't have to operate to some extent like the rest of Dell. Have you learned from these three experiences? that there is some capability that is better outside the company than inside or not? One of the things that my in-house teams will, will often hear me say, and I've said this at every company that I've been at, because to your point, I've worked in or led an in-house team since 2008, every company thereafter. And what I'll often tell the creative leaders is, you know, have a small number of external agencies that you trust that you want to work with for a handful of different reasons. One, in-house teams know their client inside and out, but sometimes they can't see the forest for the trees. 
because they are used to supporting that client and that client only. And so unless they are extremely passionate about extracurricular learning, they don't always get, they're not always privy to what an external agency is, which is a very diverse client roster and being able to learn from what's happening in different industries. So I think oftentimes an external agency can really help an in-house agency see things differently. Not to go off on a tangent, but I think it's imperative that that external agency knows the job they're signing up for. They're probably not going to complete the work in full. It's going to look different at the end than what they pitched. So they have to have pride in the idea generation, not pride in the final body of work, because it'll take a securitist path as it actually becomes as business relevant as possible. So love engaging external thought leadership um, from external agency standpoint. And then it's really important for in-house teams to have, whether it be consultancies or agencies that they trust, that can be an extension of themselves to produce the work. Because agency life is big hills and big valleys. And when you're on a hill and you are slammed with work, you've got to have some external teams that you trust can complete the work and get it to a point where then post-production, your team is finishing it out or an art director is assessing. But I've, I'm have i yet to be in an environment where the in-house team can do all the work without some level of, of support externally um, during those crunch times. Is there any downside to creating an in-house agency? I know it's overhead and you know business cycles are what they are. But in your experiences, any downside? I've been so fortunate that my in-house teams have been able to be successful and have had significant longevity. I think that prospective downsides, if you're, you know, someone listening to us today is contemplating standing up an in-house agency in their organization, make certain that the organization understands the commitment that they're making and is willing to do it for the longer term uh, because it does, does take time to establish the right players, build the right process, produce the right work for the company. So you have to have a little bit of patience in the beginning. And many, many marketing organizations are impatient by design. We were trained to be so historically, which is why you'll often see, you know, agencies come and go for companies that rely on external. So you got to be in it to win it. If you're standing up an in-house team, that doesn't mean your in-house team has to do all the work for the company. So my second piece of advice would be figure out what your area of specialization is and have a strategy for those next concentric circles where you want to grow your footprint because you need not do it all out of the gate. And that's often a recipe for failure if you try to do that. The the other component is third and, and final is making certain not just that the company's committed to the long-term, but they understand the cost implications of standing up an in-house agency. An in-house agency is not free. And what you'll often hear is the in-house agency team gets frustrated when they're told they're better, faster, cheaper, right? That they shouldn't be cheaper for cost efficiency sake. They should be producing amazing work. And because they're employees that know the business strategy, they can produce better work faster and thus it is less expensive, but they're not the cheaper option. And so I think it's also important to set expectations on the cost associated with this long-term commitment. Well, that turned into a nice little 
three pieces of advice for anyone thinking about standing up an agency. And a lot of people are, as you know, it's a big hot issue mm-hmm. in our industry. And I think we'll be, you know, ongoing for all the years to come. So that was really, really great direction, Farah. Hey, I want to switch into your GoDaddy role. You've been there about two and a half years. And I've heard you say you came to the company because of the purpose, the people, and the state of the brand, which was in transition. So that seems like a pretty good framework for anyone making a decision about changing jobs or changing assignments. So can you reflect a bit on that decision criteria, the purpose, the people, and the state of the brand, and why you decided to come to, to GoDaddy? Absolutely. The, the purpose component was, first and foremost, what I spent a lot of time thinking about because the purpose ultimately informs the actions you take when you're leading a marketing team. And I had an opportunity throughout my career to work at purpose-driven brands. Dell's purpose evolved as I was there as they shifted from a B2C company to a B2B company. And candidly, I left at about that point in time because I'm quite passionate about B2C communication at GoDaddy, we're B2C to B, which is really interesting for me, figuring out how you talk to the masses, because per some of the topics we talked about earlier, everyone has the potential to be an entrepreneur. So that message is really, can really resonate broadly. But then of course, when we communicate ongoing, it's B2B, but going back to the purpose piece, working at Vans around enabling creativity, you know, informed so much of our communication. And when I got to know GoDaddy, when I'd say in our courtship period before I joined, understanding that their their mission and purpose was to enable everyday entrepreneurs, that was so inspiring to me, the everyday component, right? Because everyone has the capability to be an entrepreneur and often the smallest of small businesses aren't supported by the biggest companies. So I, I liked the dichotomy of the big bigger supporting the small and felt like from a marketing standpoint, there was a huge opportunity for me and my team to really engage with our customers. Um, and when you work at a purpose-driven company, the work feels bigger than the work, right? The outcome when you enable everyday entrepreneurs is the world is more vibrant. There are more diverse ideas in the world. Folks like Consuela can have thriving careers and local communities are more successful. And we've got reams of research on the value that communities experience when small businesses are formed. And as I learned all of this data, as I went through the interview process, I was like, oh, I want a piece of that. And then at the same time, I got to know the team really well. And my my unsolicited advice on the people piece of work is for anyone who's contemplating a job change, spend a lot of time assessing the people that you're going to work with. Now, often as an interviewee, you, you know, you feel like you are answering questions, spend a lot of time assessing the people who are asking you questions and say, are these folks I can learn from? Um, Are they, do they respect my perspective on this? Are we going to be able to collaborate? Because marketing is the glue across so many work streams. And I was so impressed with people, all of them through the process. So I was like, all right, all right, I got to pay attention on this. And then you know, to your your third component around a brand and transformation, I've had an opportunity to work in myriad stages of a brand's history. 
but not one where a brand was trying to parlay having significant awareness, right? If you ask, you know, if you ask folks, do you know GoDaddy, particularly in the United States, the sizable majority will say yes. But most don't know what we do yet. Or if those do know, they often hearken back to a memory that was very domain-centric, showing up once a year really loud and proud. And our our purpose is broader than selling just domains. We have the ability to really address every every technical need that an entrepreneur has specific to bringing their business to market. And we want to communicate that in very different ways where the customer is at the center. So I could I could go long on this, but I'll make it short. That challenge was really compelling to me because if I connect it back to the purpose, that means I actually get to put the customer at the middle of the story and tell stories in really different ways than GoDaddy had in the past. And I, I spent a lot of time asking questions about their receptivity to telling stories in different ways. And when I joined, um, that was absolutely the case. And I was able to hit the ground running with the team. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I'm a GoDaddy customer. I have been for a long time since I left Procter & Gamble. And I was, but, you know, I thought I knew who you were, but I was just doing a lot of research before our interview. And I went to your About Us section on your website. And I was blown away because, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Your About Us is really, it's words of your customers who reflect who you are. I thought it was a brilliant piece of creativity and said everything about the culture at GoDaddy. So could you talk a bit about whose idea that was and and why you did what you did? Because I think it's brilliant. Oh, thank you. Um, ironically, we were just talking about this About Us piece a few weeks ago. So the About Us piece of work, which you can find on our website, which I agree and thank you. I feel like it's a a beautiful articulation of what matters to us at GoDaddy. That was the brainchild of our in-house creative team. And we were getting ready to bring a re-release of our website product to market. We knew that the world didn't broadly know about our capability in websites, and we built a very competitive product. And at the same time, our new CEO, Aman Bhutani, was joining. And he is very committed to knowing and understanding customers, building you know, purpose led product for our customers. And so all those things came together and really became the insight, um, which I can talk more about. I think insights make powerful creative. Mm -hmm. And the insight was, we're about what our customers are about. But guess what? The world doesn't know that yet. And we need to tell them. And when that piece of work was shown, I'll, you know, I think you often hear marketers say like, they'll get goosebumps or even like cry if a a piece really touches their heart. And when we showed that spot internally, multiple leaders who'd been at the company for a really long time started welling up. And I often say that if the outside world knew the inside GoDaddy, everyone would be a fan. And that 
piece of work is one that I think reflects the inside GoDaddy so beautifully. We used it in 2019 when we relaunched that website product. Um, and Amon was on stage with our with our customers at a customer facing event for the first time. And the reason why we were just talking about it a few weeks ago was, of course, it's still relevant. We're like, why are we not sharing this with more of the world? So I love that you found it. Thank you. It's actually um, for my team who will listen to this podcast at some point. I'm sure they'll be reaching out saying, all right, we heard you. We're ready. Let's go do this. Oh, it's very, it's very meaningful. I recommend all listeners go check it out. It's just, just wonderful. Hey, I, I know I want to flip the conversation here a bit into experimentation because I know you're a big believer in experimentation and marketing. And I want, you talked about how do you create a culture where creative people feel like they belong. I'd like you to speak a bit about how do you create a culture where experimentation is encouraged and rewarded. No one likes to fail and no one likes to miss something. And as much as we as leaders try to make that okay and make them productive failures and learning failures, it's still hard. And I think very few companies pull that off well. So what have you learned about building a culture of experimentation, high performance, high standards, and all that lives together well? We have been on a journey for the past several years, but even more so in the past year, on helping our teams not just understand why experimentation matters, but approaching it in a very structured way. And I think that helps too, right? To your point, no one likes to fail, but if you don't take risks, you never win. And very early in my career, honestly, as I transitioned from consumer packaged goods into an e-commerce company at Dell, I learned very quickly the power and importance of iteration, right? Like in consumer packaged goods, if you iterate and you fail, you've lost shelf space and you might be another anywhere from nine to 18 months away from getting that space back. And so the, the risk and the reward balance is really hard to measure. In a digital environment, it is so much easier, but our own um, psychology of not wanting to fail gets in the way. And so some of the things that we've done, like I said, we've created a very rigorous approach where we'll change a variable at a time. And when we lose, and we do about 50% of the time, we keep that hypothesis on deck right? And you're like, okay, I tried this thing. It didn't work. What else could I try? And what we'll find, and literally in a meeting last week, we had a supposition on some merchandising on the homepage of our website. And we kept trying and kept trying and kept trying. And we brought back the winner. It was the third time we had tried this past week in a meeting that our CEO was attending. And the celebration that ensued once we finally got the winner, almost I would contest was bigger than if we got the winner right out of the gate. And so, you know, you celebrate the win. It sounds a little cliche, but celebrate the wins when they happen and pat the person on the back with the attaboy if they fail and remind them that their supposition, there still could be a there there and they should experiment. But experimentation, particularly when you're in a culture that is quite engineering led and we are in a technology company, I think our technical teams can help our marketers also. Um, with their tolerance for risk. And and seeing those teams come together has been incredibly gratifying. And you'll often see a technical leader have an idea, engage the creative team, and the creative team will you know 
they'll roll out the scroll. They're like, I've been thinking about that for so long. There are all these things that I can test. And so like year over year, for example, our experimentation goals are up 50%. So we'll produce 50% more experiments year over year. And I think that is, uh, it sounds like a big number, but I would contest it's easy to do because now more and more folks are understanding the value of it and are participating in it. About two years ago, you started a documentary series about entrepreneurs and you've evolved that. Was that an experimentation in the beginning? Did that come out of this it process? It sure was. It sure was. And in fact, that approach, and I commend the in-house team for this, because of the efficient way in which they went to market with the briefs that they received, they produced work that actually came in lower costs than they expected. Literally squirreled up dollars. They were like, we want to make this series about our about our customers. And we have enough money to make it and just enough money to boost it in YouTube. And once we got that work and started to see it internally, not only did customers engage heavily with it, our internal teams were like, wow, that is a beautiful story. We need to put more funds and investment behind it. I would contest it wasn't as deliberate of an experiment then as it would be now. Like we would bring that forward in this evolved model that's much more structured to say, we have an idea. We're going to do this thing. Here is what we believe the KPIs will be as a result of this experiment. But that one called Made in America just won the YouTube Works Award this past year for breaking barriers. So the team's so proud of that work and they should be. And it, it was grounded in a hypothesis and ultimately an experiment. Everyone's trying to make content that you know, comes above the fray, makes sense for their consumers or their customer. What did you learn about that content that made it so resonant? I think we gave a lot of the control of the content to the customers themselves. You know, the stories were about them. GoDaddy sits in the background of that content. And that's exactly where, in my opinion, brands belong with really compelling content. So when the story is heartfelt and the insight is strong, and can appeal to a broad set of you know, broad set of audiences, like really getting people to lean in and say, wow, that is an amazing story. I could go start my thing. Then the brand comes to the forefront because they're like, oh, oh wait, that came from GoDaddy? Right, I should go check out that brand. But let your customer be in the front of the storytelling. And that's exactly what our in-house team did on that work. And they did a fantastic job and continue to. So, you know, we're in, you know, we have run many seasons of Made in America and will continue to do so. Farah, you were a, an accomplished, experienced leader when you took this job two and a half years ago. How are you different today than the Farah of two and a half years ago? How, how have you evolved as a CMO, as a leader? First, I would contest that I've gotten much closer to how our technical teams work. And that's really important when you work in a technology company. And so I would just say personally, I've learned a tremendous amount around, we just talked about it, experimentation, really you know, engineering thinking and how that can also make us stronger as marketers. Um, and I've built much stronger relationships with my technical partners than I had you know, back in the day when I was at Dell, for example. So that's one. Uh, two, and this is something that I focus on every day is continuing to lead with inquiry, right? Things are just changing so fast um, and making certain that with both my teams and my partner teams, I would contest, I probably ask 
many more open-ended questions, come into conversations, pushing on the why instead of the, this is what we're going to go do. And that's, you know, driven by the evolution of my team and also just driven by the evolution of the space that I work in. And then the third thing that has changed for me is probably driven more by the past year and a half that we've all lived through is just an increased cognizance of how everyone is doing. Um, and I would contest that I've always, you know, I care very much about the people that I work with um, on our prior conversation of like, what are the three things, the purpose, the people um, and the brand itself, like people first for me. But in the past year and a half, we've all been all been holed up in our homes, our individual offices. And so I would say that I've spent a lot of time in this role, you know, really trying to check in on on where folks are um, because people are individually going through very different things where in prior experiences, it's been about bringing the team together. We still have to do that as marketing leaders, but I don't think you can bring the team together unless you really know how, how people are and where they are. And so that's been an evolution for me as well. That was wonderful, Farah. I want to, I'd like to punctuate all of that, but this idea of a leader leading with inquiry or questioning is so powerful because I, uh, in my experience, the leaders who've had the biggest impact on me, and I've tried to model this myself, are those who ask me unbelievable questions, who made me think about things I had not thought about before. And I think as a leader, it says everything about the questions you ask. You know, what do you value? What do you want to learn more about? What, if, what are you curious about what the team has learned more about? So I think it's such a fundamental leadership skill that can be, you can get better at it, you can learn it, but I think uh, it's so, so empowering to ask really great questions because it leads to the development of your team, it leads to better results, it leads to better strategies. So I just really want to punctuate that. It's such a powerful point you made. Well, thank you. We're going to switch to the creative brief, which is the final section of the podcast where we sort of explore you and your insights on business and marketing and life. And the first question is a good one. If I interviewed your three boys today instead of you, what would they say about you, Farah? They would, they would talk about my energy. They would say that <laughs> my mom talks for a living. Uh, my kids have gotten an opportunity right. to really it's about right, right to really see my work. Yeah, um, and they would say that that I'm always in their corner, and I would say that the past you know if there's any silver lining that's come out over the past year and a half, it's been that I've been home. Right. And I, I hadn't been for years. I had a plane on my back and was working a tremendous amount. That hasn't changed, but my kids have gotten to see what I do for a living. And like I said, they see my energy for them and for the work that I do. Um, <laughs> my youngest, like I said, still just thinks I talk. My oldest actually is very interested in brand building and is constantly showing me advertisements and logos. So that's pretty fantastic too. Um, but I, like I said, I, I hope that they would say that I'm, that I'm always in their corner too. What's the marketing campaign that you're most proud of that you have been associated with? 
If I had to pick one, I would pick Open We Stand, which is what we ran at GoDaddy last year. And I would pick it for two reasons. One, again, I'm, I'm like a broken record on insights, but number one, it was grounded in an insight, which was everyone wanted to be open, period. Whether it was like you wanted the doors of your home open, you wanted your business open, you wanted to feel like psychologically safe and open. And that insight made that creative really resonate broadly. And most importantly, is it got 70 partners paying attention and pitching in with us. So we were able to make the campaign much more than a campaign. It actually became a set of tools and resources for entrepreneurs from you know GoFundMe partnerships to free product to consultative and webinar services. And so to be able to make really beautiful creative that really mattered for customers, that's what I'm most proud of. And you were in the background of it, right? It wasn't branded GoDaddy. No, nope, not at all. Um, and that's, and, and even more so, right? Openwestand.org was where we directed the traffic. We didn't even direct the traffic to GoDaddy because it wasn't about us. It was about our customers. When you went to the site, you saw that GoDaddy was the, you know, title sponsor, if you will, or the, you know, the company that was supporting this mission. But yeah, it wasn't about us. And that's, that's how you make work work. Biggest misconception about GoDaddy. Hmm. That we are solely about um, solely about domains. We are domains matter. That's how many many entrepreneurs, like I said, plant their flag. But we're so much more, you know. Followed by the fact that you know, I would I hear periodically that folks think about the marketing of your Mm -hmm. instead of the marketing of today. But I hear that less and less in the past few years. But I do often hear people talk about domains first, and I'm like, domains and yeah. Biggest misconception about yourself? Mm. That I never get fired up. Mm. I'm a pretty, I'm pretty calm at at work in general. I think that's probably the maybe the byproduct of having three children who are nearly nine, ten, and eleven, so very close in age. That I know, I know what I know what real stress looks like <laughs> physically. Yeah, and so as a result. You know, work stress, I tend to be able to manage in stride, but I, I also have been able to, to manage my, my fiery personality so that I seem calm most of the time. But trust me, <laughs> there are times on the inside where I'm like, all right, keep it together, Farah. What are you reading, watching, listening to these days? Mm, I'm looking at it right now because it is still taking me a ton of time, but I'm reading Barack Obama's most recent volume number one yep. of, his, of his two. Um, which, which I love. I try to alternate nonfiction mm-hmm. with fiction. Um, it's a fantastic book. I like to read at night right before I go to bed. If I'm reading fiction, I'll sometimes read a hundred pages and that's, that's not good. Um, uh, because then I'm up till one o'clock in the morning with nonfiction. I can usually knock out like 20 to 30 pages. Then I'm like, all right, time to be done. So I think this book's going to hold me and actually manage my sleep a little bit better for the next few months. Who's the mentor who's had the most profound impact on you? My mom, ironically, who is in my house right now, she arrived last night, but my mother taught me the value of always listening and understanding where people are. Now, I I mentioned that in the past two and a half years, I've had an opportunity to use that more and more, but my success is directly related to my ability to understand people. Fortunately, that's what we get to do as marketers is try to understand people. But 
innately focusing every day on getting better and better at listening and understanding people um, is what makes me successful day to day at work. How did your mom come upon that gift? You know, she's so wise. I would say that she she was born with it. But if you ask her, she focuses on it all the time. I mean, I re- recall distinctly as a young child, probably a teenager, rolling my eyes about it. But again, I remembered it. Is she would often talk about hold a mirror up when someone's coming with a lot of anger or frustration because it's not usually directed at you. It's usually their own. And if you can figure out how to diffuse it and get to the other side of it, um, not only can you work together better but you can understand what was actually getting in the way of working. And those types of lessons, you know, and her, her wisdoms, um, and I make them plural intentionally, you know, have continued to be shared with me over time. But yeah, like I said, going all the way back to early teens, yeah, I recall her sharing that type of context with me. So I would say she's born with it. She would say she works on it. Where do you find inspiration every day? I find inspiration. Number one, in personally, like getting out into the outdoors, um, being quiet in nature. And it's usually, I just tore my ACL. So right now I'm having to do it very quietly and very slowly, but usually it's out in nature moving very fast. Like I have to get to a point where I can sort of wear my body out so my mind can be free. And I find a lot of inspiring ideas when I'm out in nature, working out, ultimately running. And then at work, I find inspiration um, both through our customer stories, but then also um, when I go really deep into a topic with my team. If I don't understand, like I said, I keep asking more questions. And I love those feelings in meetings where like it all clicks, where we're like, oh, we get it. Like we know this is the right direction. And those moments give me a ton of inspiration too. When we're solving problems together through a lot of, a lot of questioning and a lot of, a lot of hard work. Farrah, that's a good way to end the interview. It's one of resilience and hope and optimism to get back (laughs) to what you love. This has been a marvelous conversation. I thank you for your generosity. It's just been full of nuggets of wisdom and warmth and character and compassion and customer centricity. So thank you, Farrah. Thank you. It's been really fun. I really appreciate the time. That was my conversation with Farrah Howard. Three takeaways from this one for your business and your life. First one, and we've heard this one again, folks. Great marketing gives you goosebumps. That's the third time we've heard the word goosebumps on this podcast in the last month. Goosebumps, if your marketing or your campaigns give consumers goosebumps, you're well on your way to growing a brand. Second takeaway, this was a masterclass in building an in-house creative agency. And one of the keys is to make a space where creative people can do their work and show their work so they feel inspired. The other one is you build the culture where they want to come to work and be with each other and do great things. The third takeaway, lead with inquiry, lead with questions. I asked Farah about her strengths, what makes her effective, and she says she tries to ask a lot of questions. The great bosses I work with over time ask me incredible questions. When you ask great questions of your team, you challenge them, You ask them to reach higher. You ask them to think about things they may not have thought about before. So lead with inquiry. And then there's a bonus lesson. This is number four. The lesson is sometimes love gets in the way and that's okay. Farrah left her dream job at Gatorade to go to Dell because her husband got a job at Dell and it turned out to be a fabulous career move. So when love gets in the way, bring it on. 
That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.